cat alcoholic, I have 49 days. Um, no, that's 49 days with a slip up. So last year, um, I got sober in, uh, October 1st and I made it a full, like nine and a half months. And I took a sip of, I took a glass of wine, uh, with my pasta in Vegas. And then I just didn't restart my date and I wasn't doing very well, but, um, we'll get to that in a minute. Let's start at the beginning. So in the beginning, um, I was raised with normal parents. I was actually raised with really well-off parents. Um, both my parents worked for Lockheed Martin. My dad is a software engineer, makes a decent fucking amount of money. Um, I had basically everything I wanted. Um, you know, at 15, I had a car insurance, phone, gas, uh, gas for my credit card every week and a half whenever I needed it because my father grew up in Utah with none of that. So he basically wanted, you know, me to have everything that he didn't have and then some. So, um, all of those things, you know, I got a job at 16, but that was like my spending money, you know, basically he paid for everything else because in the Bay area, it's going to break you. And I used that to my advantage, but I also used it to my friends. You know, I grew up in the East Bay. I didn't have have, um, a lot of friends that came from money, you know, I actually had a friend in junior high that I gave my $5 a day for lunch to every day because she didn't have lunch and she also didn't have food at home to go home to. And I did. So, you know, she actually talked about how on the last day of school, when she got a job, she was going to give me her first paycheck. And, uh, you know, I didn't expect her to do. And I told her no, you know, and she never did. And I'm glad she never did because I didn't need it, you know? Um, but I came from very well off parents, but my parents divorced when I was about eight and and they did it very well. Um, they would go into a room and they would talk and, um, you know, I could hear them talking with the door closed very sternly, but, uh, basically my dad gave everything my mother, you know, could need, but she didn't have what she wanted. She wasn't really happy, you know? And so he basically told her, if you're not happy, you know, go be happy. And that was like the best advice I could have heard at that time. It based a lot of my relationships on things, you know, it's not up to that person to make you happy. You have to fulfill that within yourself, you know? And my mom took that very well. And so did my father. My mom started seeing somebody right away and she talked to me in the car. And I remember thinking about this when I was 20, looking back on this conversation, still remembering it, but not realizing it was such a benefactor and such a traumatic thing for me. But she said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to start seeing someone. And I said, Craig, and she goes, well, yeah, why do you say that? And I said, because you're happy with him. And, you know, I could see very well, like these were normal things that were done right, but they were traumatic things, you know? And so that wasn't really like anything that started any of this. Right. So I lived in a pretty normal life. I stayed with my, my father and I went every other day to my mother's house and we went back and forth. She only lived uh, one city away in Fremont and I lived in Newark. And, um, and then my father around 16, it was just me and him and my brother, you know, he started seeing this woman and I just did not get along with this woman. One factor was my father had quit smoking cigarettes and she smoked a cigarette and she got him to smoke again. And I just didn't like this woman. She was older. She, my parents had me at late, like 37, 38. So, you know, my parents were way older. I'm 32 now and my mother is 70. And, you know, that's a big thing for me because my friends' mothers were always, you know, older or are younger, I mean, and my mother was so much older and all this. And I lived with that for a while, you know, and I think that is a big big part of why I live so fast is because, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm afraid of losing my parents and I've always lived that, you know, things, things move pretty fast in your life, you know? So I, I always lived like how I wanted to live that day. So, um, basically I didn't like this woman. She moved into my house and it started a big thing for me. I started sneaking out. I started, you know, going to raves early. Um, a lot of drugs, drugs in my life. Um, 
It started off with some marijuana when my dad was visiting her and my brother threw a party and I got high for the first time. And then from there, I got drunk for the first time at 16 and I killed a whole handle of vodka with one other person. And I blacked out and I puked my guts out. And um, from there, you know, I just had this freedom. Um, I could feel like an adult because I was being treated like an adult from this woman. She already had kids that were my stepsisters technically. And they're right now in their 40s and I'm in my 30s, you know, and so they had a daughter that was my age and this girl ended up coming to live with us and just stirred shit up i never brought people home to my house i always snuck away you know she was now i introduced her to some of my friends she was now bringing home some of these friends that were not great influences things i didn't want my parents to see and um it's it's funny because i trying to hide it turned into the bad one you know um me trying to run away from it and not just being upfront about it um I was the one that had the problem, you know, and from there, it's just, I got labeled as that. And so I spiraled out of control with it. Well, fine. If I'm going to be the bad one and nobody wants to listen to me and this woman thinks that she can just take over my life and my home and she moved in and started changing everything in my childhood home without my opinion on it just broke my heart. And the fact is, is my dad was working and didn't have time for it. So I kind of felt like I lost him too. So I really pushed them away. And then I got kicked out, um, basically at 17 and I was told over the phone by my father that, um, you know, it'd be better off if you didn't live here. You know, I'm in a rock and a hard place. Basically he chose her over me in my eyes. Right. And I could see that, but, um, it just didn't help that nobody wanted to see what I was going through. Everybody looked at it as like, I had my father and I'm the rich spoiled girl that, you know, like is acting out, but nobody could see why I was acting out. Nobody wanted my opinion. Everybody just, I was just too much for them to handle, you know? And my mother took me in and I lived with her and my stepdad and he really made it very clear that he understood that and that I loved my mother and his relationship because she told him you have your kids and I have mine and we're going to parent them differently and if you have a problem with that you come to me you know so he really showed me how it was supposed to be so I kind of cleaned up for a little bit but at that point you know I had had the party in me and so I was partying for a while and I would slip out and I would go to the bar at nights and you know I had another boyfriend in between and when I got this boyfriend um at the time I had been doing a lot of drugs. I had been, um, introduced some, to some methamphetamine and I was doing meth for a while and I got really skinny and I was kind of happy with myself. And all of a sudden I got this boyfriend and I wanted to do it right. So I quit cold Turkey. Now the problem with that is I also didn't have a lot of things in my life at the time. I didn't have a job. And so he wanted me to get a job, but I was just trying to figure out how to be sober and try to figure out my shit. Right. And I gained a lot of weight and it was a big factor on our relationship. And for two years I tried, struggled to have a job and I struggled to get my shit together, but I started to struggle on who I was and why I was with this person that, you know, didn't really match with me. And so it took another year and I finally broke up with him. And, um, and after that it was okay. And I, I got a job and I was doing okay. I was just kind of smoking weed and dabbling here and there. And then I uh, got introduced to a motorcycle club and I started hanging out with a bunch of motorcycle guys, you know, um, started dressing the way I wanted and hanging out with some people that made me feel really kind of good. And then I got into the, the drunken lifestyle of it, you know, and then I started messing around a lot with cocaine and, um, I, um, you know, I had a really, really bad night where I showed up and I was such in a party mood that 
I got, um, I asked for a line and somebody told me you can only have this line if you do a half gram line and me, me, I'm like, sure, why not? Right. So I do this whole entire line. And before I do the line, I got told that I had, thank you. I say that two minutes. I'll wrap this up before I got told to do that. I had to take two shots back to back and then I blacked out and I was raped by a friend. And from there I went, nobody wanted to believe me. Um, everybody that was there knew and hid it. And I told them to get rid of the security footage as long as nobody knew. And I was okay with that. And, um, I resented a lot of people for it. And I went into a deep, dark hole for about a year or two. And then I finally pulled myself out and I got a job. And in the meantime, I gained a bunch of weight, but I got with somebody that I had been with before when I was 17, when I was moving out of my dad's house, you know, I started kind of dating this guy, but he went off to the military. So now he's back in my life and I loved him and I wanted to be with him very much. And, um, you know, I, I tried to pull myself together, but we also had a cocaine and alcohol addiction within ourselves. You know, I treated him like a drug as much as the drugs treated in our, sorry, my alarm's going off, going um, you know, they, they all like went in within each other. And then last year he told me that he didn't want to be with me because of my behavior. So I cleaned up my act and, um, I got sober. And I got sober for him and I mainly stayed for myself because for a year I was good, but he was still using and using around me. And I had a slip up in Vegas with a wine. And then he actually broke up with me about two months ago and I took a shot and I freaked out and I went to a meeting. Um, I took a very large shot and I went to a meeting that night. And the next day I went home and I cleaned up my act and I got sober again. And I restarted my date because I had not restarted of my date from that Vegas wine. And I started to realize I was good and I wasn't drinking. But then when my October 1st rolled around, I got really sad because I could have had a whole year and I didn't. And I threw it all away because I was not active in my program. And then this person broke up with me and I started to realize I was better off when I was at least doing it. But I started to realize too, that God did for me what I wasn't willing to do for myself. I wasn't happy with this person because I wasn't fully wanting to be myself, I was hindered, you know, and, um, I'm pulling myself back out of it. I bought a new car. I bought a new phone. I'm moving now in the next month. Um, I have a new job. Um, I started going to the gym. I have a gym membership. You know, I really have cleaned up my life. I go to three meetings a day. I go to a sexual assault meeting an Al-Anon meeting and then I, a, and my life has improved far beyond anything that I could have fucking done. And yeah, I may have done that for a partner back then, but I definitely want to stay for myself. And I see what it has done around me because no, not only did I put people through stuff, but I have people like my mother and my father that have never given up on me. You know, my father pays for my therapy. Um, no problem asked. He said that he thinks it's a great idea. You know, I went to the meetings on myself. My, I actually had a friend, Molly, that when I called her the first time he broke up with me, she said, I'm going to a meeting. Do you want to come with me? I think it would, you would really benefit. And she saved my life. And this is a girl that was 21 years old and I'm 32. And she showed me the fucking way like that. And it was something that I never thought I could have in my life. You know, I went to the bar to not be alone and now I come to meetings. So I'm not alone. You know, my first time getting sober last year on zoom, I went to five different zoom meetings just so I wasn't sitting alone in my room because I felt miserable.
and it gets easier and it, it's it's so hard this is such a hard thing because we are not only you know trying to be sober but we're trying to change ourselves from the root you know and I think that's so important I think that is make you know I used to look at people that were sober and think what do they have that I don't have um and I used to think, you know, like they're so much better than me and they're really not, you know, I think we're better than they are because we're working on ourselves more from the root. And I think that's something that we can't take lightly. Hi, I'm alcoholic. My name's Robert. Look at that. Lots of people I love very much here at this meeting tonight. Welcome, Paul. Um, it's really weird to be um, at a Zoom meeting. I have gone back to completely in-person meetings. And I'm a little triggered. Um, the last couple of years was really weird on Zoom, and it was very hard to acclimate to Zoom. And uh, I didn't like it at all. And I didn't know what to do. I turned off my camera and I listened, but I wasn't really listening. I was really looking at my phone. And I'm a person who goes typically to seven to nine meetings a week. Um, I've been sober a really long time. I got sober November 1st, 1982. But I find that going to a meeting each day, planning my day around the meeting, gives my life a kind of structure where I don't have to uh, get into trouble before I come running back to AA. Life stays pretty consistent if I plan my day around a meeting. I learned that not early on, but relatively early from my second sponsor. He taught me that, and I didn't like it, but he was right. So it was weird to come to Zoom meetings and dislike them. I felt then at the time like I was a newcomer because I didn't feel a part of, I didn't feel connected to, I really didn't like Zoom. I like the idea of going across town to a meeting and seeing people I don't normally see. My meetings tend to be, I'm, I live in San Francisco, my meetings tend to be in all the various neighborhoods of San Francisco. So I get up to Forest Hills, I get to Presidio Heights, I go down to the Mission, I go over to Noe Valley, and then I hit a couple in my neighborhood. And that's pretty nice, but it was really strange and I felt really alienated from the meeting before the meeting and the fellowship after the meeting and connecting with newcomers at meetings and it was strange and so um I started to go to small, you know, people for a while started to have like off the schedule kind of small meetings that were private and I started going to those and I liked them at first, but then I found out what it must be like to get sober in a small town, you know, where there's eight people at the meeting and everybody's heard everybody share and everybody says the same thing every day or every week. And you're like, oh, my God. And so then I started to have problems again. I had a completely different kind of existential crisis. And I talked to my sponsor who just lit into me and was like, you know, the heck with you for running away and going to little special meetings that nobody knows about. Why don't you come home and go to your regular meetings? And so I do what my sponsor says, even if I think he's being mean. And I started going to all of my regular meetings on Zoom. And what I did differently was that I leaned in and I listened and I actively listened. I greeted people and said hello to people. And I started having this kind of vibrant exchange with people. And I found that I really liked Zoom. I could see everybody's face. Like everybody's got their camera off, in my opinion, isn't even at the meeting. They're just, they're podcasting. They're not here. And so like, okay, so I'm with all of you of your camera on and are looking into the camera. Like for me, you're the people at the meeting and that's why I'm here. And so what that did for me 
was it connected me to people. Um, I had to deal with all kinds of stuff I didn't expect to have to deal with with 37, 38, and 39 years of sobriety, which was like looking at people's houses and where they live, looking at whether people were looking at me or not, or where I was or who I was next. It was all this petty, childish nonsense that I actually got to write inventory about and work through. And it was really, really good for me. And then me started up and I started, oh, and it was, I really expected it to be like, oh, I'm back. Hey, hey, oh, yay. But it was just as weird. It was just as weird to go back to meetings in person again. It was very strange. And so here I am now after months of really avoiding Zoom and I'm the speaker at a meeting where we're looking at each other and I'm brought back to the last two years. I have 73 dead friends. Um, 11 of them are from overdose or suicide and the rest are from COVID. And to me, that's just an unimaginable number of people. I can't even process it. I haven't even begun. Um, I don't know if I'm sad or if I'm angry or I'm frustrated or scared or what I am. That's just too many fucking people. And so this reminds me of all my dead friends. And um, that's heavy. And I think that's why I wanted to talk about that, to make the adjustment and to arrive in this room with you now. Um, my sponsor's name is Chip G. He's been sober for 39 years, same as me. Um, he was at my first meeting ever. And um, I've had a bunch of sponsors. My home group is Sesame Step, the Sesame Step group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet at 7.30 on Tuesday nights at 23rd and Sanchez at the Noe Valley Ministry, and we study steps. And on the last Tuesday of the month, we go over a tradition. And it's pretty good. It's a great meeting. I love it. It's changed so many times into so many different kinds of meetings. And um, I've loved it almost all of its incarnations, which is great. It's why it's my home group. Um, what do I want to tell you tonight? I have a little bit of time. And so I can share with you that um, I'm a native San Franciscan. My mom was Miss San Francisco in 1959. My dad inherited a bunch of money and my mom married him. And um, they beat the shit out of each other and had a terrible time and really never should have been married. My dad molested me till I was eight. I called the cops. I told my teachers. I told my neighbors. I told my mother and nobody helped. And when I was nine years old, I took my first drink of alcohol. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, did that solve all my problems. I couldn't have even told you what my problems were. I, I was a child. I didn't have any language, but alcohol turned me into Astro Boy. I didn't need words anymore. It fixed all my problems. The next thing, I couldn't wait to get drugs. Drugs were fantastic. And so I just went from a little kid right into the garbage can. And so by 12, I was living in the street. I was hustling, selling myself to get enough money to stay high. I got really strung out on heroin and I drank all the time. I remember sitting around talking with people about how, you know, speed wasn't addictive and neither was cocaine. Heroin was a really big problem, but we were different and we knew how to handle it. And never, ever crossed my mind that alcohol was a problem. Alcohol was what I needed in the morning. Alcohol was what I needed at night to go to sleep. Alcohol was what I used, like, by the half gallon to try to kick if I needed to kick.
was revived by 911, and in 1982, overdose was considered attempted suicide. And if there was enough in your system, it was possession. So they arrested me on two counts. And I told them I lied. I told them, I tried to tell them I was English, but they didn't believe me. And um, I gave them a fake address and I gave them a fake name and they tried to process me. And what they did instead was they just put me in the mental hospital and they detoxed me there. And um, then they found out I was a minor and they all sat around me in a circle and said, you're going to die. And I said, no, I'm not. And they said, yeah, you are. I was going to die because I hadn't listened to a word that anyone had said. And I said, yeah, I have. And they said, no, you haven't. And I said, yeah, I have too. I was really upset. And they said, well, then what did we say? And I thought about it. And I really, you know, I'd been in, you know, trying to understand what was, what they were talking about. And I didn't really have any idea what they were talking about. So I said, I don't know. And they said, you're going to die. Because they gave me this choice, right? They said, you can, you can be a ward of the state of California and go to Minnesota and finish high school. I had a seventh grade education. I didn't want to go to Minnesota and I didn't want to go to high school and I didn't want to do anything anybody asked me to do. Or my other choice was to take the clothes on my back and go back to the street where I came from. And so I choose going back to the street where I came from. For me... The way I grew up, my family was chosen in the street. My life was punk rock. It's funny, I was talking with someone I really love last night about punk rock and why punk rock means anything to anyone. And um, I was talking about the Stooges in 1969 and the early talking heads in New York City in the early 70s and how the 70s punk rock was like it was transgender and it was um, inclusive and creative and artistic and amazing. And there were tons of quaaludes and lots of heroin and it was just anarchist in the sense that there were no boundaries. And for me, that was where I came of age. That was what I ran away from home to throw myself headfirst into. And that would have been great for a child of abuse and my terrible family to... Um, escape into you know who knows but the booby prize here is is that i'm i'm an alcoholic nothing that happened to me as a child made me an alcoholic alcoholism is still to this day a completely misunderstood condition for me i can't herbert said it last night at a meeting in marin it was terrific it's this simple idea that robert plus alcohol is bad right i cannot remember that I do not remember that because my heart got broken or I didn't get the job or I did get the job or I have a bunch of money or I don't have any money or I'm scared or tomorrow's going to come or next week's going to come. Whatever the fucking reason. I cannot remember that Robert plus alcohol is bad. Somehow it's going to be okay or it's going to be different this time. And that's, that's the, the insanity of alcoholism. And what's terrifying is having been sober as long as I have. I've done that with credit cards. I've done that with my fucking ex. Again, I dated someone, the only person in AA I've ever dated. I do not date in AA. I let them move into my apartment 11 times before I got through my fat head that we shouldn't be together. And that took years. And it's because this time it'll be different. This time, and I want it to be so different that maybe I can make it different and I can't make it different. Man, it is what it is. AA is not 
a self-improvement program. It's a self-acceptance program. I have alcoholism, and that took me many years and a lot of pain to accept. And to accept it doesn't just mean, okay, you're right, whatever. It means to really accept it and admit it into my heart. Um, a lot of that involved going to therapy and working through my childhood issues. I had a lot of them. I got mommy and daddy issues. And I needed to work very hard on myself, and I did. And, but what has saved my life was the steps. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was the last thing I wanted to do. And it was the first thing my first sponsor wanted to do with me. And so what we did was we talked about this idea. Like, I knew I was powerless over alcohol. I knew it. Like, duh. Like, I felt special because I was powerless over alcohol. Like, you wanted it, but I fucking needed it. And so that somehow made me cooler than you. It's this idea that people with really bad gutter stories are somehow cooler than people who have, like, pretty stable, pretty nice bottoms that also happen to be alcoholic. It's just nonsense. There's nothing good about a really, really low bottom. There's nothing cool about eating out of a dumpster, shooting heroin out of a toilet. Nothing. There's nothing cool about that. So in my experience, the people that didn't hit bottom face first and lose their teeth like me, um, you're really blessed. Unfortunately, circumstances, people, places, and things, money, um, even love doesn't keep you sober. What's been my experience is it, I really needed to accept that my life had become unmanageable. Um, I thought I knew the truth. I thought I, I knew the way the world should work. I thought I knew how BART operated and how the freeway systems could be repaired. I thought I knew how the city should be managed and how the police should carry themselves. And I didn't know anything about anything. But I thought I knew. And my sponsor explained to me that people whose lives are manageable, they have phone numbers and receive phone calls. They have addresses and they receive mail. They have access to a bathroom and a kitchen. And just that simple, humble little list had me in tears because I didn't have any of those things. I'd never had any of those things. And I'm one of those things. And that was humiliating to me. It was so humbling for me to admit to another human being that I wanted to get mail, or that I wanted to use, a, I mean, I went to the bathroom by, I lived in a plywood box with a couple years sober, and I would wait for the manager of the pizza parlor across the alley to go on his break. And then I would run into the bathroom and lock the door. And that was the way I washed my face and hands, brushed my teeth and combed my hair. I didn't really brush my teeth. Um, I took toothpaste and rubbed it on. <laughs> I didn't have a toothbrush. And so, like, my life hadn't really changed at all. I mean, I was sober, but I was really unhappy. And I thought going to AA meetings was like being punished. Because I watched people come into AA, get like 90 days, and they'd be in a brand new sweater. They'd be having sex with somebody sitting next to them with that look on their face. I fucking hated those people. I felt like it was like magic, like some magic shit had happened to them. And that magic shit was never going to happen to me. I'd been coming to AA for fucking two years and nobody would have touched me with a 10 foot pole. And I just felt like how I felt on the inside was how I felt I looked on the outside. I perceived any kind of kindness as heckling or, you know, shit talking or some kind of making fun of me. I couldn't, I just didn't have the capacity to let anything in. 
but I knew I didn't have anywhere else to go. I knew what would happen to me if I didn't go. And that was all I was holding on to by a thread. And so it was talking with my sponsor, my first sponsor, James, bless his lovely, wonderful, patient, brilliant heart, was that my life was not okay. The way I was living was not okay. And I didn't have to live like that anymore. I didn't have to drink again ever if I didn't want to. And so I asked him the magic question, what do I have to do? And he told me I, all I had to do was work the rest of the steps. And that was a problem. It was a big problem because the second step, just right there at two, you got to come to believe that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. And I'm telling you, if you've been raped by your father, there's no God. Like, there's absolutely no way there's a God. And everybody who believes in God is a fucking idiot. And so, like, I really had to work really, really hard for a very long time with the help of my sponsor. And some of the AA literature, none of that really helped. But really, it was my sponsor, and it was being heard, being able to talk about how furious I was at this idea. And it's hilarious now, because, of course, as a relative newcomer, the only power in the whole wide world greater than me had to be like Zeus, you know, sitting in the clouds, hating me. Like there couldn't possibly, couldn't be like, like, I'll show you a power greater than me, right? You just get your fingers wet, right? And stick them in a light socket. <clears throat> There's a power greater than you, right? The ocean is a power greater than you. A hurricane is a power greater than you. But the trick, right, is it's got to be a power that I actually believe could restore me to sanity that could help. And the cool thing was that it didn't turn out to be a deity or anything, a philosophy, nothing. It turned out to be the steps. It turned out to be you. Because I watched you come in. I watched you go way past me, laughing, full of gratitude, full of love, getting all that cool stuff in your lives and bragging about it. And like sort of taking it for granted, not coming to meetings and then start drinking again and then come back as a newcomer. And I'm like sober, going real slow, real slow the whole time. And um I felt like whatever magic was happening in Alcoholics Anonymous was something I'd better pay attention to. And that became my first higher power, was you, the group of drunks. I was able then to hold hands and to say prayers and to take direction and take service commitments and everything changed. And the third step, the first time, man, I don't know what I was talking about. I just said this prayer my sponsor told me to say, and um, he was really excited. And I started writing my fourth step. The third step, I think I should say, has come to be the centerpiece of my recovery. Um, I want to do God's will with all my heart. I don't always know what that is. Most of the time, I don't know what that is. And when I think I know, I'm usually in trouble. So what I have to do is continue to surrender. Alcoholism remains a motherfucker. And so what I have to do is disambiguate my thinking um, with steps that come later. And, turn, and be willing to turn that over to God as I understand God, which has matured and become a much more personal, much more meaningful relationship in my life today. Um, the fourth step was easy. I just, Mr. Brown hates Mrs. Brown and, and she's taking the house. And so I get it. I wrote all the people I hated and why I hated them. I didn't hold back at all in the second column. I just wrote every little teeny tiny reason why. And then I had to figure out how that affected me. And I didn't know. And then I had to figure out what my part was. And I didn't know. I thought I was a victim. And, uh, you know, if you're a victim, right, you're helpless and there's nothing you can do. And so that's not true. The things that happened, happened. 
and forgiveness ultimately means giving up all hope of a better past. And so in step nine, I came to some of that for the first time. But when I was writing my fourth step, trying to do my first fifth step, I didn't know. So I was, it was really fun to read all the people I hated and all the hundreds of reasons why I hated them. But there was no answer for how that affected me. And so my sponsor showed me this idea that I traded my self-esteem for people's haircuts. I traded um, my personal relationships for my assumptions about people. I traded um, my serenity for almost anything. Like my most precious gift is my serenity. And I trade it for anything, you know, a noisy car, um, a slow moving traffic, whatever. I'll trade my serenity for that. I traded it just like it meant nothing to me. And um, that was heavy. Like to think that I was actually exchanging everything good about me, everything I wanted in my life for any old thing. And um then he asked me, you know, what my part was, and I didn't understand what my part was. I mean, I read the bit about the seven deadly sins, and I didn't even want to cop to any of that because it seemed to me like it was a trick, and I was going to end up a Catholic, and I didn't want to do that, and what the fuck, don't judge me, man. And he just said, we looked at the big book differently, and the idea that my part in anything is really fear, self-centeredness, and dishonesty. So with those three primary colors, red, yellow, and blue, I can make anything. So if I'm grandiose, right? What is grandiosity? It's really just fear that people don't know how important I am, right? It's fear really that I'm not that important. It's selfish because all I'm ever thinking about is how important I am. And it's dishonest because I'm fucking not that important. And so like, that's it. So if I can disambiguate any complicated feeling or any vicious or long held resentment into simple terms, then I can do something about it. And that's what I did. I did that in his Camaro in the Berkeley Marina. We sweated up the windows, fogged up the car. We sat in there for hours and we went through everything verbally. He didn't let me off the hook just saying it. He made me like take my pencil and write everything down that I said because he said I was going to need it. And then he sent me home to look it over and see if I left anything out. And I fucking left some things out. You know, I don't know why there's no part of the fourth step that says, you know, tell your sponsor like the four things you're going to go to the grave with and never tell anybody, but somehow it felt right. And so I got with him and I told him those things and um, he matched me. He had a story for everything I had to say. He understood exactly what I was talking about and I believed him. And um, six and seven were really simple at the time. It was just making sure I hadn't left anything out and then asking God to remove my character defects. And then came the eighth step where I was supposed to make a list and um, I didn't want to make the list. It turns out my issues with God were really nothing compared to how scared I was to pay back all the money that I stole. I mean, there were a lot of people in my life that wanted to help me and um, they let me come to their houses and I stole their record collections and their stereo systems and their televisions and anything I could stick in my jacket and um to go back to those people was a, an idea that i couldn't really face and so um i just kind of went into a holding pattern and my sponsor would say how's that eight step list coming and i'd say great and i didn't do anything for like two years 
And at the end of that period of time, I was not going to meetings. I was thinking about drinking, pretty sure that nobody loved me, nobody would ever love me, that there was no God and it wasn't going to be okay. Pretty sure, but I was completely misunderstood, probably broken, probably just going to die, wished I would die. And um, that's what my was like. It was a lot like it was before I even got sober. And at this point, I think I might have had six or seven years. And so I went to my sponsor's door and I knocked on it and he opened the door. He was on a date and uh, his girlfriend was on the bed. He was wearing nothing but a dashiki and he had incense and candles burning. And he was like, hey, man, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, and I, like, I wanted to run away. And he just said, what's going on, man? And I started to cry and he gave me a big hug and he's like, what the fuck? And I told him, oh, I told him what was going on. His girlfriend made me tea. I sat down at the kitchen table and he pulled the, the stupid, you know, those notepads with magnets on them that are on your refrigerator. He pulled that off the refrigerator and got me a pen and just said, write your eight step list now. And so I did. I wrote all the names down and then we went over it right then and there and we converted it into a ninth step list. And I was so relieved because like I wrote capitalism and America and all kinds of stuff on my eighth step list. And he'd look at me with this sweet sort of face and be like, man, how did you harm capitalism? And I'd be like, I don't know. And he'd be like, you think you harmed capitalism? And I'd be like, he asked me to look up harm in the dictionary and I didn't harm capitalism. He let me cross it off. And, and so like I crossed off a lot of stuff on that list, not all of it, certainly not even a majority of it, but it felt really, really good to cross names off the list to realize I wasn't as bad as I thought I was. That was cool. Then we list lists of living amends, um, which were things I had to always do like forever. And um, then we made direct amends, the people I had to go to and make direct amends to in person. And then we made lists of those things, which was what was more difficult, um, what was no sweat, and what was something I wasn't willing to do. And in no time, my life just rocketed into a completely different place. It started with cashing $99 every two-week paycheck into $5 bills and putting them in envelopes and mailing them off to people, which was humiliating. Humi you owe somebody like, you know, $26,000 and you're sending them $5 a month with a letter saying, here's your $5 and telling them how much more you owe them. And my spot, he just said to me, you're going to make more money. It's going to be okay. I did not believe him. I was just like, there's no way I'm going to make, it's always going to be like this. And he's right. I made more money and I paid most of those amends off in single checks later. Um, that was great. But the hardest part of the amends process was going back to families that had really loved me and been kind to me and that I had done nothing but hurt. And, um, you know, I, one story is a family you know, three daughters, a mother and a grandmother. And I went to the door and I knocked on the door and they opened the door. I was, the screen door was between us and they all stood there, right? And I started my spiel about how I was sober and Alcoholics Anonymous and I owed them money and I, I had the money and I was really sorry. And I held out the money and they listened to the whole thing, every word, and they all just stood there like, not a word, not a flare of nothing. And then they opened the screen door, took the money out of my hand, and then slammed the door in my face. And like, 
you know, that seems mean, but I'll tell you what, I felt like I got off so easy. Like those people could have marauded me and told me everything that they felt about everything that I did. And they didn't, they just took the money and closed the door. And that was that I never had to bother those people again. And, um, I felt so different. I felt so transformed making those amends, but the hardest part of all was instances where I wasn't able to make amends. People that I'd really violated that to go and see them would have hurt them all over again. And so what I did as the result in the face of those things was I started doing volunteer work, you know, cleaning toilets and being a peer counselor and doing really whatever I was asked to do um, for organizations related to the matters. Um, it was all really confusing, you know, having been a victim of child abuse, but then having abused so many people was very confusing and therapy was really helpful and sponsorship and AA being having a sponsor and being a sponsor that all really helped a lot, but there's nothing like doing community service. It brings you to the front line of a matter where you're really putting something back. I put things back that I took away from the world without a second thought. Um, I've been healed in so many ways that I don't even really resemble the person that I was when I came into AA. It, I have um, so much gratitude, and yet I still feel there's a debt I'll really never be able to repay. Never. And um, that leads me to 10, 11, and 12, which is how I live my life today. And that is that when I wake up in the morning, I look at the day ahead. I read spiritual books, I do yoga, I do push-ups, I sit quietly and meditate, and then I go fuck it up. I go live my fucking life. And uh, throughout the day, if I become agitated, I pause. I ask God as I understand God for direction, for whatever it is I need. And then I take it easy. I relax as best I can. You know, nobody's perfect. We're not saints. But I'm willing to grow. I want to grow. I want to do God's will today. And then when I retire at night, I take stock of the day. I draw a line down the middle of a piece of paper and a set of notebooks right over there. And I, my assets, what I do today, um, and my deficits, how did I screw up today? And then if there are any resentments, I write those resentments out just like regular resentments. If something really big went down, I talk it over with my sponsor or a friend. Um, it's really important that I don't let the sun go down on resentments. Um, I found that if I go to bed and wake up the next day, I forgot all about it. And then that turns into a, a real deal. Um, I don't have any power over my alcoholic thinking, not even with 39 years sober. And so I need to follow the instructions for the 10th and 11th step to the letter out of the big book. Those two things together are an ideal for living for me. I want to do God's will. I want to know God better. God doesn't hate me. God isn't punishing me. God's not going to send me to hell. I understand God as something that the stars shine and are made of the same fucking thing we are. And like we're all connected. And so for me to turn my will and my life over to the care of the ocean or the stars or love is easy. Um, that's the way I, that's the world I want to live in. And I've got to be that man. And I don't do a very good job, but I'm trying. I'm really sincerely trying. Um, step 12 is easy. I love being a sponsor. I'm, I'm my bodies are my heroes, like men and, and, and one woman that are in my life actively trying to live this way, to be sober and to grow spiritually, um, to help other people. That's the most beautiful and heroic thing I know. 
and it gives my life a purpose and a depth and a meaning that I don't want to live without. Um, I've been kind of a hoggy sponsor and had a ton of sponsees. And in the last 10 years, um, that's come to my attention that I need to like get more honest. And so I've had to tell people that didn't want to do what I said and just have me as a sponsor in name that I still like them. But this is AA and this is fucking serious. You've got to do what I say if you want me to sponsor you. And if you don't want to do what I say, find somebody who you do want to do what they say. Like it isn't personal. Somebody taking that personally probably needs another sponsor themselves. So like the, the idea is that this is, this is about sobriety. It's about spirituality. It's about fellowship. It's about service and love. And if it's about something else, I don't know what to tell you. Because every time I've ever tried to do that, I found myself in the middle of um, suffering, unhappiness, compare and despair. And, uh, you know, I don't want that to be like that for me here. I come to AA to show gratitude and to love and to be of service and, and, to, and to give back. And um, I don't really know how good of a job I do, but I know that I didn't drink today. And so I'm a fucking A-plus member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, that's what you get, right? You get sober. And I couldn't, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I swore I was never going to drink or never drink this again or never going to take that drug again or never going to go there again, never going to say this again, never going to sleep with her again. And I would always do it just like that. And um, a lack of power remains my dilemma. I need a power greater than myself. Um, I think that um, the only other thing I want to share with you is something I did to preserve my sanity during um, the quarantine, which was very hard on me. My living is made um, in public with people, and I require gatherings and people being free and comfortable to get together for me to earn a living. And so the last couple of years have been really, really hard. And um, something that I did was I took out um, the St. Francis prayer, our 11-step prayer, and I took each line, and one day I would take the first line, and I would try to be a channel of, of God's peace. And I wandered around wondering what the fuck peace was and what the hell that meant, and it was interesting. And one of the things I want to share with you is, is there's a line in that prayer that says, that where there's hatred, may I bring love. And so I walked through San Francisco from one end to the other that day, looking and wondering, how will I bring love where there's hatred? Where is the hatred? And I walked around San Francisco looking for like a fist fight or a shoplifter. And I'd already been through, so like I chased the shoplifters out of the, the grocery store that I love to go to. And, you know, I, I, you know, I found a naked woman in an alley and I gave her my coat and I walked her home. Like there'd been a lot of freakouts and I'd been of service at every opportunity. But in this day with this is my intention, wandering around, wondering what to do. I was standing at a corner of like McAllister and Webster, which is like the Midlands of the Western edition. And um, someone's saying something to me. I'm going to ignore that. And then, um, so 
I'm standing at McAllister and Webster and this group of tech yuppies comes to the corner and they're holding boxes of IPA under their arm. And one of them has got um, a puppy suit on, you know, like puppy jammies. And he's got the head, his back off of his head. And so you can see he's got a puppy hood to his puppy jammies. And I'm thinking in my head as I'm looking at these people, you fucking pieces of entitled shit. You are the people that have ruined San Francisco. So I'm there with 38 years of sobriety standing on a corner looking to bring love where there's hatred thinking these people are the reason why san francisco sucks and everything is so expensive and i'm full of rage right and i'm standing there and the guy with the puppy costume looks at me and he's smiling like a genuine sincere smile and he goes nice hat and the whole world just paused and i thought i i, I had a hundred horrible things to say but what i did was something was shifting inside of me and i said thanks and they said, have a great day. And they walked across the street and I just stood there like shimmering, itching, confused. And I realized in that moment that the hatred was mine. <laughs> I needed to bring love to my own hatred. And um, so the lessons don't stop. The growth doesn't stop. The power of the 12 steps doesn't stop. It's worth Continuing to come back. They say, keep coming back. This is the only place anyone has ever said that to me. And they're right. So my message to you tonight is no matter what happens, no matter who breaks your heart, no matter what goes down or goes sideways, don't drink no matter what. Bring your broken heart to us. We'll listen to all of it. We love you. We love you in a way that doesn't ask for anything. And if anybody's asking for something, that isn't love. So just keep coming back. Stay sober. Um, Self-reflection, prayer, meditation, and service. It's an ideal for living that really works. I'm living proof. Thank you.